0: But let's get into this. Carrie Newhoff said this this past week in an article I read. Do you know anyone who doesn't talk about money in some way every day? There's hardly a family in your church or your community that doesn't have a daily conversation about money or in some cases a daily argument. People talk about whether the Target run was too expensive, whether they should buy a new house, how they can swing a mortgage renewal, new trucks and SUVs, whether to sell the old minivan or drive it for longer, whether they can afford to put the kids in travel sports, whether to buy name brand or save by buying generic. People talk about money and they think about money every single day and couples, in fact, end up breaking up over it. So I am not going to apologize for Jesus. Who is talking about it again in this passage? In this story about money as wealth is presented and as, as, this, as this topic is tackled again in the Gospel of Luke, and I don't know in the past weeks whether you could relate to the beggars and the lepers and the Pharisees, but I got to believe that most of us in this congregation could relate in some way to this fellow who comes to Jesus today this rich young man shows up. And I say rich young man, he's got money, he's got youth, and by the very fact that he's a ruler, one would say influence. Money, youth, and influence. Well, some of us don't have all three of those. Some of us don't have any of the three of those. Just wish we had them, okay? But but most of us have some parts of all of that. And while Luke gives few details. The the Gospel of Mark helps us along a little bit more. It says that this man ran up to Jesus and fell on his knees. A man determined, even desperate, to do the right thing, and somehow, in spite of all that he had, desiring more. Or he wouldn't have shown up at the feet of Jesus. Jesus. in spite of the fact that he was seemingly self-sufficient and he was healthy and he was influential and he was free, he is clearly missing something in his life. And he calls Jesus good, and Jesus is good, but Jesus corrects him, and I believe because of the superficial way, and that's what we'll see in our text here, some superficiality that he tosses around the term without even knowing Jesus, a term that is reserved for God's standards alone. And he asks a question, and, and, and is there a more important question in all the world than what he asked there in verse 18? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Huh, everything's blank. Okay, well, that's all right. And there are lots of ways to ask the question. As we read through this passage, and we'll see a cluster of words, and I want you to hear this for those of you who are Bible students. There's a cluster of words. There's a word eternal life that's in this passage. There's a word treasure in heaven. There's another word entering the kingdom of God. And there's another phrase, who can be saved. And I want to suggest that if we look at these words, all of these commingle to basically mean the same thing. The essential question that is going on in this text, that is at the heart of this man, is his question What do I do to be right with God, both now and in the future? This is what he wants to know. And he uses the language again, eternal life, he uses the treasure in heaven, he uses the language of of salvation or being saved. They all commingle to mean the same thing. And Jesus says, well, you know the commandments. And Jesus mentions some of the commandments here, and he cites commandment seven. Now, why he starts with commandment seven is really kind of curious. And then then commandment six, and then eight, and then nine, and then five. And this is all at least taken from Exodus chapter 20. So maybe Jesus had a different list somewhere else. I don't, from somewhere else, I don't know. But all the commandments that he lists are, are related to how we treat other people. And then in verse 20, here was the reading of that. He says, so you shouldn't commit adultery and not murder and not steal and not give false testimony, but honor your father and mother Here's why I believe that he is talking about these things, because money easily distorts our view of other people. And we saw that repeatedly in the passages before. Remember the rich man and Lazarus and how the rich man all the way to Gehenna finds himself looking down on Lazarus. It's something that can just get embedded in us on account of the fact that we've got money. It distorts because of this temptation of using people and loving things rather than loving people and using things. What Jesus does mention at this point is the four commandments, the first four, about putting God first. And the confidence then that exudes from this man is striking. He says, "I've kept all these things since I was a boy." Now I don't know exactly how he said it. He might, maybe, he said it a little bit less, less tonality than that. But there was some kind of superficiality in his answer which prompted Jesus to go deeper, to move from this horizontal level to this vertical, vertical relash, uh, relational commands to the vertical ones. And Mark notes at this point that Jesus loved this young man. Verse 22 then says this. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Seems to me that Jesus exposes the real issue and as Chuck Swindoll says he uses a scalpel not a dagger like a real surgeon with the aim of redeeming not humiliating or condemning. Jesus insists that the man see within his own heart. And the problem is the man has superficially kept the commandments. But his deepest heart trusts, and this is the key word trusts in his wealth. In other words, his deepest security is not in God, but in his money. So attached to his money, in spite of his eagerness to know more, in spite of his posture of openness, Jesus' words were more than the man had bargained for. And our text sums this up with this deep problem with very few words, but verse 23 says this, he, when he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy, grieved. The demand was too much, and the man's superficial enthusiasm is gone. What's so interesting is Jesus' butt doesn't back down. He doesn't go after the man. The text says in Mark that he loved him, but he gives us one more thought, revealing that there is simply no competitor for our soul like money. Verse 24 and verse 25. How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. This famous word picture has been explained in a lot of various ways. If you've sat in some Bible classes through the years, Jesus simply takes the largest creature in the common experience, a camel, and the smallest space in the day-to-day world, the eye of a needle, and he makes this great hyperbolic statement about the kingdom and about wealth. And, And while it is humorous, it is deadly serious and raised the point If the rich who everyone understood in their day and still in our day, in most cases, if you are rich, you have been abundantly blessed by God, and Jesus is saying they cannot be saved, it raises the question in the mind of the disciples, rightly so, well then who can? And Jesus replied in verse 27, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And I believe this is the insight, the piece of the puzzle that gives clarity to the whole story. The rich young man was on a mission for something more. And like many, many of our quests, He was filled with self-interest and self-management and self-attainment and he was looking for Jesus to confirm what he had done. Jesus, on the other hand, could see the man's understanding from the beginning by his loose use of the word good and by his question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? and recognized that the man lacked a depth of understanding of his own brokenness and bankruptcy before God. He thought he'd kept the commands. While he'd kept some of them, he missed the deeper one. Here it is. To put no gods before God. God to love God with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength and he didn't do this for his love of money was too great it was greater than his love for God the question was the man's security in God or in his wealth And it's a great question for both him and for us. Was his trust in God or in what money could provide? Seems to me that understanding the passage and Luke's this way helps Luke's gospel and the entire Bible come together. This is the essence of the gospel. The essence is we cannot justify ourselves. We cannot make things right based upon what we are able to do. Based upon the things we have. This reinforces the rich man and Lazarus. This, the Pharisee and the tax collector who went up to the temple to, to pray and to the little children that are in the just in the preceding section who are welcomed in aware of their own lack of self-sufficiency. There's just no place for self-justification or pride. Paul would say it this way in the book of Romans, there is no one righteous, not even one. No one can do it on their own. The message flies in the face of all of our endeavors, religious and otherwise, to try to find Self salvation. Paul said it clearly in Galatians chapter 2. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Seems to me that sometimes we need a shock jock to confront our complacency. And this seems to be exactly, if Jesus could be akin to or likened to a shock jock, this is what he is doing in this passage. To confront our complacency, not everyone is, in this request by Jesus to this rich young man, is being asked to have a fire sale and liquidate everything they give to the poor. And the reason I can tell you that is because in the very next chapter is the story of Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus has to respond and he gives away half. He pays his debt and then he gives away half of everything he has to the poor. So it's not even the same response as we see in the rich young ruler. In other words, Jesus wasn't necessarily saying that we all do this same thing by giving up all that we have, but we must get to the taproot, and this is the reason for the shock to the rich young ruler, and find out what is your deepest trust. Where are you placing it? He exposed the man's super way, superficial way of of seeing his faith. I want you to get this. Tim Keller said it this way, and I think this might resonate with some of us. Jesus is saying, You have put your faith and trust in your wealth and accomplishments, but the effort is alienating you from God. And I want you to get this phrase. Right now, God is your boss, but God is not your savior. Do you see the distinction between those two things? You're in conformance to the rules. You're trying to play by and live by the Ten Commandments. God is your boss. But if we expose the deepest part of your heart you're trusting not in God but your security is in your wealth. God is not your savior. That's a sobering thought. And here's how I want to suggest that each of us can see the challenge of this passage. I want you, just for a moment, to imagine your life without money. I want you to imagine it's gone. There's no cash in the bank, there's no inheritance. There's no property. There's no car. There's no home. There's no rainy day fund. It's all gone. What you have is Jesus. Here's the question Can you? Live with that. Or is it possible that God is your supervisor but not your Savior? You're doing what he's asked like a good employee responding to the boss but you're trusting in something other than him. Now, many of us, particularly in this room, the generation that were maybe most represented in this auditorium, became followers of Jesus during high school or college. And at that time, we were trading our unknown future because we didn't have any possessions. We didn't even have a job. We, didn't have, we'd have, we were trading our future for our confidence in God now. And it was a huge ask. I don't mean to minimize it. It's a huge ask even then for any junior high or high school student to, to say, I want God to be number one in my life for all my future. Well, we think it's going to get easier. But as life progresses, trusting God, following God gets even more Challenging. Because now we have a spouse, or we have kids, and we have a mortgage, and we have a secure place in the neighborhood, and we've got a profession, and we've got our church, and all of these things actually can become obstacles that make it harder, not easier, to trust God with all things. But here's the gospel from this message today. The bad news is that you are trying to save yourself or make yourself right with God by trusting in yourself and your things, but you can't do it. The good news, you can be made right with God through the miracle of Christ alone not by your own efforts. So I leave you with this this morning. Even though we've been at this for a while now in Luke 15 and 16 and 17 and 18 and these passages on money and wealth and riches keep coming. Another one next chapter as we look at Zacchaeus we might skip him. Here are the questions to ask yourself will you try to clutch for God and money too? And I will suggest that Scripture tells us there seems to be no evidence that you can do it. If you try to hold on to both, you will go away sad. or you'll be resentful with what you've been given. The alternative is to be set free. And true freedom is in Christ alone. The message is strong because only Jesus is truly trustworthy.